I remember vividly that at the end of everybody presenting, there was one common theme. It's how they're going to change the culture of the organization. Because culture is strategy for breakfast, as you know. Welcome to Mission Critical, a podcast about the big picture, the purpose, and the values that drive today's most game-changing companies, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm your host, Lance Chung, Editor-in-Chief of Glory Media, and I'll be introducing you to a group of brilliant minds who are making an impact on the world and forging the path ahead. While they may all be very different from each other, the question remains the same. What's your mission? So excited to be here for our last Mission Critical live taping of this year, at least, uh, with our guest today, President and CEO of LCBO, Dr. George Solius. Uh, a big round of applause. <laughs> George, how are you? You know, I'm great. Um, Lance, thank you for um, doing this. And thank you to uh, Glory uh, Media. Uh, and welcome to the head office of the LCBO. I'm looking forward to this uh, conversation. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, so much to really talk about. You have, as I mentioned, uh, such an incredible story. When we first met, uh, we first met because we were on the judging panel together for the Bold Awards. Mm -hmm. And so I didn't really get to know you too much personally uh, about your story until I really started doing some research for this interview. That's dangerous. <laughs> and you have such an incredible career path that I'm so excited to share with everyone today. Um, but before we dive into some of that, uh, I want to know, what's your philosophy on the perfect bottle to bring to a dinner party? Do you have kind of any set rules around uh, what's the perfect gift, gift when you're attending a housewarming or a dinner party? Um, do you know, it really depends if you know the people that you're bringing it to. A lot of my friends, I know what they drink, whether they love champagne or rosé or a bold red or a nice Chardonnay. But if you want to play it safe, champagne is always the best <laughs> and the safest. Uh, but really, it really depends on the person that you're bringing it to. Um, and uh, I have a lot of friends who really know a lot about wine. So it's very difficult to bring them a cheap wine as well. It's got to be a really good wine. Um, but it's, again, I hate to tell you that, but it really depends. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so years before you became the CEO and president of, you know, one of the most powerful organizations in its category, you started off with very humble roots. You came to Canada as a refugee from Cyprus in 1974, moving to Hamilton to work at your uncle's restaurant. How do you think your experience as a refugee influenced your perspective on the world as well as the life that you really wanted to build for yourself? Right. Um, <laughs> you know, my, first of all, my story is not very unique in this country. A lot of people, a lot of immigrants that come in this country, they come as refugees or they come as immigrants. And a lot of these people don't even want to come here. They're forced to come here. Now, that doesn't mean that the country is not a beautiful country or is not accepting. It's actually the, most, the, the best country in the world. But when I came to Canada, I came with absolutely nothing. And one of the things that helped me is that I had nothing to look back because I had nothing. I had to look forward because we had lost everything we had. Our house, our property, everything. I came here with basically... <coughs> A suitcase and what I had to do was to look forward 
to find a job, to support my family, to support myself, and to start thinking of the future. What can I do in this country? And this country, in my opinion, is a country of opportunities. And that's what I was looking for. What opportunity do I have? What can I do to get to the next level? I didn't even think of being the CEO of the LCB or even going to university. So it really gave me a very different perspective. But the fact that I had nothing to look back, it was very helpful. Yeah. Yeah, just set your size, uh, your eyes forward. Um, so, you know, you came to Canada in 1974, and a lot of people talk about the American dream when they, when they immigrate to um, a different country or, you know, I guess to America. But what do you think is, you know, the Canadian dream based on your experience? Is it different from what people talk about the American dream? Um, well, first of all, Canada is very different than the U.S. You're a multicultural country. We're a very accepting country. Um, I, in fact, I'm, we're very happy to be in Canada rather than the United States, in my opinion. Um, and it is a country that, that um, celebrates immigrants, celebrates the various cultures. Um, and it is a country that gives you opportunities. That it is, it's very different in the United States, in my opinion. Here, we accept, we help and we promote immigration, and we promote people to come to Canada. And that's something that I don't think you find in the United States. Yeah, yeah, the culture is very, very different. Yeah. And by the way, immigration is incredibly important to our country. Yeah, it makes up, the, I mean, as you say, so much of the fabric of our culture and our community is made up of uh, immigrants and refugees, and so... Um, but the other, thing, the other thing I want to say, Lance, is that we don't just tolerate cultures, we actually celebrate them in this country. And that, there's a difference between tolerating and celebrating. And tolerate is a, kind of an interesting word to use when yes. we're talking about embracing people that are right. uh, coming into our community. Um, so today, you know, fast forward, you oversee a massive company that has incredible influence and heritage. Um, of course, over the course of your tenure at LCBO, the organization has had to navigate its own transformation over the years to keep up with what's happening, whether that's in culture or the business landscape. What have been some of the biggest turning points uh, for the company that have really reestablished its role in the industry? Because the LCBO, when it first started out, is obviously very different from the LCBO today. So over the course of your career here, what's what have been yeah. some of the big turning points? So we're 96 years old. Uh, today, I wasn't there in 1927, but it was created in 1927. And we've come a long way. I don't know if some of you remember the consumer distributing model that we had, which when I came to Canada, that was the LCBO. Uh, and I would say that the last 35 years, the organization has changed significantly. So, and I was, I've been part of this organization for the last 25. So I've seen the organization inside the last 25 years. Um, and I would say when I took over as a CEO seven years ago, I knew that we needed to change quite a few things. And I, I always tell the story, um, when, I, when I was appointed as a CEO, I, I went to Harvard for two weeks to do a CEO workshop. And I was with a group of another eight CEOs. And the drill was that the first night is you present your retirement speech. And uh, I remember 
vividly that at, at the end of everybody presenting, there was one common theme. It's how they're going to change the culture of the organization. Because culture is strategy for breakfast, as you know. So I knew that the organization was not broken because it was producing what it is supposed to be producing, but I felt that it could do much better. And the fact that, that the previous government started the modernization of the market by creating 450 grocery stores that can sell beer, wine, and cider, as well as we're selling to TBS, and we really started to have competition. I felt that the organization was not ready for that. So not only we needed to change the culture to one of being entitled, because we were the only game in town, but also an organization that is aligned that the, the, the talent and the functions uh, and, and uh, the structure were aligned, because they were not. Over the last 90 years or so, the structure of the organization organically grew to be what it was when I took over. So I knew that we needed to make significant changes. So we started the organization design restructuring of the entire organization. And it wasn't easy. It took us about a year or so to reorganize. And I knew that this was going to be a little bit of an experiment because you don't always get the exact structure that you, you imagine. And I know we've made some mistakes, but we've learned from those mistakes. But one of the things that I said from the beginning is that the culture will have to be customer-centric, collaborative, accountable, and we have to have the right diversity, inclusion, belonging, and equity. And that was the foundation for the change. And within the last seven years, we've come a long way. And that reorganization has been reorganized again because we had to tweak a lot of the things that we've done. And you should always know that you don't always get it right. It's just like an experiment. You said you went into organic chemistry. How many times did your experiments fail, right? I, I come from that world as well, and I can tell you, I knew but as long as it's not a fatal error, and as long as you don't continuously make the same error, it's okay, because we've learned a lot from that. And today, I think we have a great structure here. It allowed us to bring in wholesale. It, allows us, it, it allowed us to do a lot of things that we were not able to do in the past. And we now have not only retail customers, but also wholesale customers. And quite often, my people here tell me, well, what are we, a wholesaler or a retailer? We're an ambidextrous organization. We're both. There are many organizations in the world that are actually both a wholesaler and a retailer. So that was the biggest change, in, I would say, uh, the last 25 years that I know of. I mean, obviously, LCBO is, uh, you know, an institution in that it's been around, it's a heritage brand, it's been around, and it's embracing innovation. But how hard is it to move the ship when you want to make decisions and kind of make these changes? And also because culture adapts and changes very fast. And so how do you keep up with um, the times and, and make sure that things are, are up to date? No, I think it's a, that's a very good question. Uh, my predecessors used to say that the LCBO is like an, an ocean liner in the lake and you just can't turn it around. You know what, but yes, you can. But you start by introducing change management. You wanna make sure that your people appreciate and understand what change is. And you really need to explain to people why you're changing. 
if you're just going to change and you're not communicating the change, you're not communicating what return you're going to have because of that change and why you really need to change, then you're not going to be successful. And one of the things that I've done, Lance, is, is I always say that, that uh, competition is music to my ears. And the reason I say that is because it allows me to use it as a lever to challenge our people to do better. Because just like anything else in life, if you don't do it right, someone else will do it for you. So it's incredibly important that we are change ready, especially when it comes to changing a culture. Changing a culture is one of the most difficult things. And if you don't keep your foot on the pedal, it regresses. And quite often people will hear me that during the pandemic, we've done a lot of things very differently and we were not seeing each other and we were not communicating with each other. And I was very, very worried about the culture regressing because it took us a lot of effort, uh, a lot of labor to get to where we got. But you know what? What we do here at the LCBO is we communicate relentlessly. Any messages. You'll see monitors out there. You'll see me on videos. Uh, you'll see all kinds of different... I will attend town hall meetings and I would repeatedly uh, send the same message to make sure that people remember. And you know what? People like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think that you've answered a few of my questions here, but I think, uh, you know, to your point, um, and especially while I was doing my research, it doesn't seem like um, competition and, and change are things that necessarily phase you. They almost seem like, you know, opportunities that you've embraced to really move the ship forward. What's your philosophy on problem solving, whether they're mountains or molehills? How do you approach, do you approach those things in the same way or... Um, differently? Yeah, I, I approach problems the same way, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a scientist by trade, my background, so I'm very analytical. So I always like to understand the problem. Um, why is it? Because a lot of times people think it's a problem, but it isn't. But I also created a core team. We used to have this executive team of 25 people that would come into a room every Monday and we would look in the rearview mirror and that was the executive team. That's not an executive team. What I've done is I created a team of eight people. They are the senior, senior people of the organization. And what I said to them is, look, we're going to meet once a week or maybe more if we have to. And what I want is to debate, to challenge, to argue and to come to an agreement. But in order to be able for you to do that, there has to be trust and respect and professionalism because if you want to be able to get in a room and argue your point you want to make sure that the other people understand and they're not going to go out there and say George said right you want to have trust and you can open up and that's how I deal with problems I bring them to the table for my core team and the other thing that I've done is I selected people who supplement what I don't know because there are a lot of things I don't know and there are a lot of smarter people than me that sit in that room. They have expertise in HR, in finance, in supply chain, in marketing, uh, in IT, and they're really, really good at what they do. So I always put the, the, uh, the issue on the table. And the other thing that I tell my executives is it doesn't matter whether you're HR or a lawyer or a marketer, you know something about everything. Just 
discussing. Because quite often the best ideas come from people who have no expertise in that. And that's how we resolve issues. Um, and I keep communicating everything with the team. I'm 100% honest with them. I love authenticity. And I love people to come to the table and be open to, not to criticize, but to provide constructive ideas. Uh, and it has worked. Have we always had a unanimous decision? Not always, but most of the times we do. And the times that we don't, I'll have to make the final decision. Yeah, exactly. Right. Your career has been, you know, anything but a straight line. I was doing my research. You graduated. You, twice. <laughs> <laughs> you graduated as a French cuisine chef at the Hotel and Catering Institute back in Cyprus. Once you were in Canada, you earned a biochemistry degree at McMaster University, going on to work as an organic chemist at Environment Canada before moving to Stelco. And then from there, fate knocked on your door and gave you your first taste of a career in spirits at a Niagara winery where you advocated for your education in winemaking as part of your job. There's a lot more beyond that, but if we put a, a pause there, uh, clearly continued education and learning, whether formal or informal, is a big theme in your life. Um, how have you embraced a you know, quote-unquote student mentality in the way that you approach your career and work, and why has that been so important for you? Right. By the way, I did all of that not because I didn't know what I wanted to do. <laughs> I did it because I saw it as opportunities. And I've always believed that my grandmother, who never went to school, she used to always tell me that it doesn't matter what you learn, it is useful. And it is. And you know what? The other day I was doing a cooking show for the organization celebrating the 30th anniversary of food and drink. It came useful, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, in fact, when I worked at Stelco, I did a metallurgy degree at McMaster at night uh, because I felt that's going to be my career. But another opportunity came. So I got a call from Andrew Peller at the time. There was a huge, I was telling someone, there was a huge crisis in the industry. Billions of dollars were lost because of what the LCBO did. You know, that's that's the, the influence of the LCBO. The LCBO found a potential carcinogen in certain products. It became a crisis. It became a global crisis. I don't know if anyone is here who, who, who um, uh, remembers that. You guys, you're too young. <laughs> Um, and then I, was, I had the call from that, that uh, winery saying, hey, we need someone to set up our quality assurance. We have six wineries in Canada. Would you do it? And my deal was, yes, but you need to send me to UC Davis to study enology. And that's how I got my enology diploma. But uh, to get to your um, uh, question, I am a student. I will always be a student because I don't know everything and I learn something every day. And if I focus on something, I need to know everything about it. And that's the reason why I've always done that. When I was appointed as a CEO, my chair at the time said, you know what, it'd be a good idea if you took some courses, absolutely. So I went to Harvard for those two weeks to do a CEO workshop. I went to uh, IMD in Lausanne to do another uh, workshop for, I think it's 21 days. Uh, and I've learned so much. So I am thirsty to learn because it just gives me more depth and breadth. It rounds me. I become a better person, but I'm still not the smartest person. I still, there's a lot that I can learn. Uh, and I have so many people that are sitting at my table today, Lance, that know so much more than I do. 
but you have to recognize that 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 you don't know everything, and you will not you'll never know everything, and every day you learn something. Uh, so that's been my sort of mission. Yeah, I mean, I guess part of to your point, part of being a leader is. Not necessarily being the best at what you do, but having the humility and the awareness of being able to, well, the humility to recognize it, but also the ability to identify talent that is the best at what you do. And, you know, I also know that I'm a very passionate person, you can probably tell. And, and, and I have learned that um, quite a few years ago, that passion is a double-edged sword. And you have to be careful with it. It could be great if you use it the right way, but it could actually work against you if you're not careful. Because people will think that you know everything. You're intimidating. They're not going to really tell you what they want to tell you because they're afraid of you. So passion is great, but you have to be careful how you use it. Yeah. And I guess also, you know, you talk about always being on this path of lifelong learning. And it's true that, you know, especially within the lens of business, when we talk about having a diverse team or a diversity of perspective, that helps inform your decision-making process at Absolutely, the end of the day. Yeah. Um, just an observation. But yeah, I think that that makes total sense, especially in the, the role that you're in. So ultimately, with the combination of all the experiences from metallurgy to, uh, you know, being uh, an expert in the kitchen, how have all those experiences collectively really helped you in your position that you're in now today? But there isn't really one thing that, that, that helps you. I think is, is over the years, you gain a lot of experience. Um, you use that experience to learn even more. You have mentors. I've always had mentors. Um, and it happened that most of my mentors have always been older than me because uh, um, I felt that they're wiser than me. Um, so it just, you know, you, you develop relationships, you develop connections. Um, there isn't really a single thing that I would say made me what I am. And I think sometimes there are certain people that can be leaders. It's probably in our DNA. And there are others that have it in their DNA and they develop it, right? So I've always loved to lead. I've always loved to... to um, uh, to work with people, to get things done. That's who I am. Um, but I always felt that I win if I work with a team. And there's one thing that I've always, and I say this to my team, is don't worry about who gets the credit, worry about the team winning. And that's how I led in my life. So I'm not sure if I answered your question, but there isn't really a single thing that I can tell you made me what I am today. Um, it's a lot of things. It's really up to you. Um, and sometimes you bring it with you, I think. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the sum is greater than the individual parts, right. I guess. Um, what kind of influence and impact does the LCBO have, not just on a provincial level, but also a national and international scale? You kind of talked about this crisis before that, the LCBO had, you know, uh, a role in or a position in, but today, what, what is the power and the influence of the LCBO when we talk about it as an organization? Yeah, you know, one of the reasons why I came to the LCBO 
uh, when I was offered the job, because I had a great job with the private sector, was that I really wanted to make changes to the organization. The LCBO was not a collaborative organization. One of the reasons why we had the crisis is because the LCBO felt it was us against them. Um, and that's not who I am. When I came here, I said, we're going to work as a partner. We needed to make those, those changes because I realized that the LCBO can influence. And they can influence in a good and a bad way. And what happened in 1986 um, with the FO it was a disaster. Everybody hated the LCBO because the situation was mishandled, right? So what I said to the guy who hired me, who was an endocrinologist, a doctor, I said, this is never going to happen again. A, we're going to be talking to the LCBO on a continuous basis. And B, we're going to try and make changes. And when the opportunity came, I came on the other side. And it really helped the industry tremendously. And we haven't had, knock on wood, <laughs> not a single crisis because we're working together. But let me tell you how the LCBO... Look, the LCBO is the largest uh, beverage, alcohol purchaser and retailer in the world. So with that comes a certain responsibility. And we know that. And that's exactly why we created the spirit of sustainability. And we talked about people, planet, and partnerships. That's why we, we included the partnerships in, instead of the profit. Because to us, people, planet, and partnerships is the sum. If you add them up, if you do it right, and you add them up, it actually translates to profit. I'll give you an example of what we've done in the last few years because of our influence and how it benefited the whole world. Um, we worked in the background, in our warehouses, to come up with a lightweight glass bottle. Bottles could weigh as much as a kilogram. So a case of wine could be as high as much as 22, 23 kilograms, right? Imagine someone slagging 23 cases, 23 kilograms a case, you know, every two minutes, right? It's, it's backbreaking. We had a lot of musculoskeletal injuries. Our um, carbon footprint skyrocketed with that. So we were able to come up with a lightweight glass bottle of 420 grams, less than half of the norm. We worked with glass far, uh, manufacturers. We worked with all of the suppliers to bring them along. And then we decided on the 420 grams. And we said, 80% of what we sell in wine is actually at less than 15.95. Let's go out there and ask everybody to comply with 420 grams. And you know what? Most people complied. Those that resisted came on board anyway because the majority complied. And today that is called the Canada bottle. We have turned the whole world to comply with a 420 gram lightweight glass bottle. So that's how we can influence. We also have Dorina Brazoviano, uh, my director of quality assurance. She's, she sits on the National Quality Assurance Committee of all of the Canadian legal jurisdictions. We drive the agenda because we chair that. And we chair it and we drive that agenda because we want to do good. So there are, and I can go on and on and on, Lance, in terms of how we share our data. We have the best quality assurance laboratory in the world, next to none. 
and we have the largest database of analytic, analytical results on alcohol beverage, we should be in the Guinness Book of Records. Quite often, we share that data with Health Canada, the Canadian Food Inspection Agency, uh, the European Food, Sa the European Food Sa uh, Agency, uh, FDA, and the reason we do that is to avert crisis, is to help other regions. To, and I can tell you a lot of stories as to how we've done that to make sure that the, the, the consumers are protected and the industry is protected as well. So absolutely we can influence, but for the good. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so much power and influence. And as you say, a lot of responsibility that comes with that. And now, you know, just even with those examples you've set, uh, the organization has set industry standards beyond Canada and, and really led by example. Um, another one that I wanted to talk about is, you know, Spirit of Sustainability, which you mentioned is your social impact platform that supports social and environmental needs. Within that, um, what is the Spirit of Inclusion Initiative about? Yeah, that's, um, I love that topic because that's an area that uh, I think the LCBO has done a lot but not enough. Um, so we, 63% of our labor force is women. 50% of my executives, starting from the junior director to senior director to VP to senior VP and to the chiefs are women. But it's not just about women. We realized that we need to create opportunities for diverse women to enter the industry. It's not just about us. It's about us, as you said, influencing the industry to do better. Because we knew that the, the industry record is not the greatest, but it's getting better. Certainly the LCBO record is better, but we're still, we still need to do more. And that's the reason why we created the spirit of inclusion, which is based on our, uh, our uh, spirit of sustainability. Uh, and we are working very closely with a lot of partners within the industry because we want to bring these like-minded partners along, like Moy Hennessy, Verve, like Diageo, like Labatz, uh, and they're working with us to create scholarships for women. Uh, in fact, we have 20 scholarship, scholarships for 13 women right now. We're working with the International uh, Wine uh, Guild uh, while, sorry, the International Wine Education Guild <laughs> um, with uh, George Brown, with uh, Brock University, with Niagara College. Uh, and, and we really enjoy that because, you know, the industry is very interested in this. And they're starting to work with us to fund a lot of these scholarships and show more interest. And they are hiring more diverse women because we want to create opportunities for these diverse women to enter and to thrive and to succeed in our industry. That's what the spirit of inclusion is. Yeah, and I think that's just one part of, from what I was doing in the research, one part of a very larger picture around some of the CSR yeah. initiatives. Yeah, so we've, we've, uh, we've created uh, employee uh, resource groups. Uh, we have uh, 800 uh, good culture ambassadors that the, they're volunteers who are working with these employee groups, uh, hum uh, resource groups, uh, to find solutions, to challenge and see where else can we do better. So we take this very seriously. So that's part, that's the social impact. 
of, of course, we have the environmental uh, impact as well. Um, in the 2023 Bold Barometer by Vuv Clico, which is uh, a barometer that talks about the state of women's entrepreneurship around the world, um, research found that 63% of women and 51% of men surveyed believe that it is more difficult for women to become entrepreneurs than men. And obviously today, uh, through our Mission Critical Live series, we've been highlighting women entrepreneurs and really showcasing a lot of uh, women that are doing incredible things. People that are in the audience have been our speakers before as well. But we also, it's really important to talk about allyship and creating opportunities for others. So from your perspective and experience, what does a good ally look like as an individual, but even as a, a, an organization as well? Yeah, by the way, those 20 CVs that we reviewed, uh, Lance, I had a hell of a time choosing one person out of that. Or two. There are so many amazing, so many accomplished women. It was so difficult. But your, but those statistics most likely are right, of course. So, what I would say, if you want to be an ally, uh, don't just provide lip service. Open the door, and don't just open the door. Pave the way. What do I mean by paving the way? Is make sure that you provide the right coaching, the right mentoring, the right development, so that, that that person has the opportunity to be the successful candidate. So I, we have a succession plan uh, strategy that we review twice a year. And my core team sits around the table and we look at everybody and we, we, we ask ourselves, that person has the capacity, what do we need to do for that person to get to where we want them to get? It is incredibly important that you don't just open the door as you pave the way with action. That's allyship, in my opinion. And let me give you uh, an example. Uh, I mentioned Dorina Brazovianu before. Um, I hired Dorina 23 years ago when I was the vice president of quality assurance. I set up quality assurance here. And um, when she came on board, I realized that she's a, she was an immigrant here, um, came with nothing, basically from one of the Eastern European countries. Um, she, someone actually called me and said, would you take this woman? We'll pay for her salary, you just pay for her bus ride. So within a week I said, I don't want your money, we're gonna hire Dorina. Um, she was smart, she had fantastic education, she was trusted, she was hardworking, she was very savvy in working in the laboratory. And she was in an environment where there were a lot of men, not a lot of women. In fact, my, when I left uh, Quality Assurance, the person who replaced me was another man because Dorina wasn't ready. But we continued training, developing, and coaching Dorina. Today, she is the director of Quality Assurance. She's a very well-respected scientist in Canada in the alcohol beverage industry. She chairs the National Quality Assurance Committee, and that's because not only we opened the door for her, but we did everything we can that, to get to where she needs to get. And that's allyship, in my opinion. Yeah. And as you mentioned, I mean, it's also... You know, I run out of water, so I'm going to start uh, the champagne. Yeah, let's do it. 
but it's you know it's uh, mentorship opportunities, leadership opportunities, but also financial support, which uh, I've seen has been done through tuition support, financial support for childcare and transportation. A lot of these things that we re- that we don't always realize are are obviously struggles that um, a lot of women face, whether that's childcare or getting to their jobs and everything as well, and that is equally as important um, in order to cultivate an ecosystem of, you know, more equity and inclusion as well. Sure. Um, as we kind of wrap up and just to kind of summarize some of the things that we've talking about, we really obviously like to talk about mission and purpose. So at the end of the day, what would you say is your personal mission in your role and what is the mission that LCBO has as an organization? Well, as you know, um, we delivered to the government $2.7 billion a year. It's about $55 million a week in net revenue. We deliver it as a dividend. Um, but one of the things that a lot of people don't know, and, and, and by the way, we are known to be a very customer-centric organization because that's who we are. We're a retailer. We're very passionate product consultants and CSRs in their stores. And, and I think we're known for being a, a great customer-centric organization as well. One of the things that people don't know is what, how passionate our employees are in giving back to the communities they work and live in. And I don't know if you've seen our report, but uh, last year we gave $14 million uh, to a number of charities, including the Four Children's Hospital Foundation. Women's College, um, the United Way, um, a number of different organizations. So there are certain things that people don't know about us. But my, let me go back to the mission. My mission, as I said to you from the beginning, is to change the culture and to keep my foot on the pedal to make sure the culture doesn't regress. That's, that's number one. And number two, is to continue to make sure that this organization is viable for the future. And one of the things that we're doing today is to replace the entire technology of the LCBO. So as of January 1st, we have a system integrator who's going to work with us. And the next three years, we're going to replace the entire technology of the organization. We, are, we have technology that's based on legacy systems, based on Fortran, and cobalt languages that, that you guys don't know anything about because you're too young. So we can't find people to even support those languages. And we're not able to bolt on to those systems. So we have selected the CSI. We're going through a review right now. And as of January 1st, it's a very exciting project. But it should be exciting for the, the many young people of the organization because that's what we're doing is we are ensuring that this organization is viable and is successful for the future. So that's my mission. Um, there's a lot of other things really that I'm, keep me up at night, but these are the, the, the two priorities that I have today. And if we can get those two priorities right, profit comes because we know how to do that. But it's incredibly, I always go to the culture because, as I said to you before, Adam, culture is strategy for breakfast. It is incredibly important that you have the right culture. 
And the reason why we ended up with 63% women uh, as in our labor force and 50 on our executive is not because we went out there and said we're going to hire only women. It's because we created the right environment and the right culture and, and for people to not to be afraid to choose and not to be afraid to come and join the LCBO. So that is really, for me, one of the best things that I can do for this organization. I love that. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Um, and thank you so much for all of your insight and perspective on, and, and also just sharing such an incredible story. So uh, thank you. A big round of applause for Thank you. Thank you, Lance. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you liked, who you'd like to see on the show, and anything else you want to share. To keep up to date, subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Until next time, ask yourself, what's your mission? <laughs>